0: Let's pray together. Father, in your word, the psalmist tells us, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed. From the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and the west and the north and the south, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. For you, Lord, have satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul you have filled with what is good. Father, we know that to be true this morning. Whatever the condition uh, we may be in, wherever our lives may be today, Father, however joyful or sorrowful, however full or empty, Father, we may feel on the outside, maybe we even feel on the inside. We, we know that these things are true, that you, as we've been singing in song after song, Lord, as we've been reminded in, in communion as well, that you are in the business of redeeming us, Father, from this broken, sinful destructive world and, and, and transforming our lives by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's your free gift. It's available to us all, Father. It's free for the taking if we'll just turn to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Father, you say if we believe this, we will be saved, and, and by this, so many of us here this morning have been saved, Father, and we're grateful. Father, your, your word said, Jesus himself said, he who's forgiven little loves little, and he who's been forgiven much, loves much. And Father, we, when we examine our hearts, we know that, that we've been forgiven a whole, a whole lot more than maybe we first thought. Father, that, that everything about us before we knew Christ was, was against you. Father, that everything about us was stained and tainted and scarred by sin. And Jesus gave it all so that Jesus could forgive it all. And Father, we thank you for the assurance this morning of your free gift of salvation, and that it covers every sin. Father, that gives us faith and, and confidence and, and even boldness to approach you this morning, to come into your presence and to sing your praise. Father, apart from Jesus, we have no business coming before you. We have no business speaking your name. We certainly have no business singing your praise, but because of Jesus, we can do all that and more. Father, your word says, let those who are redeemed say so, give their praise back to you. Father, give our, our adoration and our honor and our, our thanksgiving back to you. And Father, we Trust that as we've sung this morning and read your word, that, that that's been done, and you've heard it, and you know the gratitude of our hearts. Father, my prayer now is that having done those things, that we're ready to hear, Lord, not a sermon and not a preacher, but to hear from you through the preaching of your word. Father, as we continue to look at, at where we came from, at the story of the church that is our story and it's our heritage, Father, I pray that you would give us this morning minds that are our calm and quiet hearts that are open and receptive. Father, a willingness to to let your Holy Spirit speak in quietness to each one of us in our heart. Father, I pray that as we open your word, Father, we won't be distracted, we won't have our minds in other places, but for the next little while you'd allow us to zero in on what it is you want to say to us as we study together. Father, for that to happen, as always, we need the the presence, we need the ministry, the power of your Holy Spirit to come and guide us in truth because your word is truth, to come and guard us from error, Father, because we don't want to be, we don't want to misunderstand, we don't want to be led astray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to deliver our hearts from the stuff that's piled up all week long, the stuff we've carried in with us. Father, the things that, uh, that threaten to divide and distract us, Father, wipe all of that away so that for the next few minutes, we might have the opportunity and the wonder and the joy of seeing Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word, and may we see him only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, may we leave rejoicing, not because we came to church, but because we we met with Jesus here. And it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, let's go ahead and dismiss the kiddos for Children's Church. Children's churches for the five-year-olds up through the second graders. It's their time to dig into God's Word. Thank you. As we do the same, if you're not making your way out of the room, make your way into your Bible. I hope you have one. If you don't, run to the back and get one so you can follow along. And turn it specifically with me to Acts chapter 15. Going in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 15, where in one sense, in the broad sense, we are, and I just sort of indicated this, I guess, in prayer a moment ago, we're just continuing to look at the story of the church As we've talked about so many times here, our story, the story of where we as believers in Jesus Christ came from, how something known as, that we call the church, came into being. But we're also specifically, and we'll unpack this as we go through God's word this morning, we are, while we're continuing in with the same story we've been looking at already, we're at a a milestone, a real turning point in the book of Acts and in the story of the church, and I'm, I'm excited, I'm also deeply challenged by what we're going to look at here and and see what God has to say. And as we get into it, let, let me just say this. I, I love it when God does this. And I, I try to share it with you anytime. I'm i become aware of it, how God, apart from our orchestration, fits everything together. Because what Tim was talking about in communion this morning, this sharing in the fellowship of Christ and, and in his body and his blood, and how anyone who believes can do that is exactly where we're going in God's word uh, today. We didn't talk about that. We didn't know that was coming. But even with the music and, and the scriptures, God is fitting all of this together. I think he... Has something to say to us this morning. It's not what I have to say, but it's what he wants to say to us through his word. It's kind of a long passage we're going to look at this morning, so we're going to take it in little pieces. So as you have your Bible open, hang on, we'll, we'll get to the reading beginning in verse 1 in just a few minutes. But, but first, again, and this is sort of by way of review, but, but let me remind you or, or simply say to you that as we've made our way through the book of Acts, as we've gone into this study and, and, and continued in this study, you have heard me say almost every single Sunday, usually multiple times throughout the message, that the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply and only this. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, you will be saved. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe this, and you will be saved. In other words, if you want to be reconciled to God, you recognize there's a sin problem in your life that needs resolving. You want to be assured of a relationship with him that starts now and lasts forever. You, as we often put it, want to know you're going to heaven when you die. That's it. That's the answer, that's the message, that is the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. It is the good news of salvation. And one of the things that makes it so good, one of the reasons we call it not just news, but good news, and if we were honest, we'd call it fantastic news, is that it's free. One of the best things about the gospel Message is that it's free. And in the 14 chapters of Acts that we've covered so far, as we've worked our way through the story, the wildfire like spread of the church in the book of Acts, that's what the apostles and others have faithfully preached that message and that message alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the fact that it is free. And they've, they've, they've preached it when it's easy and they've preached it when it's hard. They've done it in the face of opposition, they've done it facing the reality of persecution. This is the message they've been preaching so far. But this morning, and this is the reason I call it something of a turning point or a milestone in the book of Acts, as we enter into chapter 15, what we're about to learn is that there were some people in and around the church who were messing with the message, who were taking this free, clear, simple offer of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and, and they were taking that free offer and they were corrupting it And then openly presenting it to others as fact. As no, this instead is the gospel message. So what we're about to see here this morning is, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, without overstating the case in in any way, is a monumental moment. Not just in the book of Acts, but in the history of the entire Christian church. This is a moment where they had to get it right. Where a decision had to be absolutely clear and unchanging. And and so what we're going to do this morning is simply this. We're just going to walk through the passage together. We're going to try to clarify exactly, first of all, what the problem was they were facing and where it came from. Then we're going to talk about, secondly, sort of how they dealt with it, what the apostles and leaders of the church did to respond to this corruption of the gospel. And then, of course, as always, we're going to see if maybe along the way there are some things we can learn about it today as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're going to figure out in simple terms how to get the story straight how to keep the story straight so that it doesn't get corrupted or misunderstood. And to do that this morning, there are simply three things in this passage we're about to look at I want you to see. They're not principles, they're simply parts of the story walking us through exactly what happened. The first of which is simply to understand, to acknowledge in verses one through five that what we're about to see here, and I'll walk you through it and show it in just a moment, truly was, number one, a gospel-centered crisis. What the church was dealing with here at the beginning of Acts 15 was nothing other than a gospel-centered crisis. Grab your Bible and follow along as I begin reading God's word in verse 1. It says that some men, we aren't told who they are, came down from Judea. It says when they came down from Judea, where they came to, we're about to learn, was Antioch. That's where we left Paul and Barnabas last Sunday. They came down from Judea, they came to the city of Antioch, and they began teaching the brethren, here was their message, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now the deal here, before we go any further, is this. Judea, where these men came from, was Jewish territory. It was, as we would call it, the land of Israel. These were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who came with this message, but they brought it to Antioch, which was largely Gentile territory. There are Jews there, but it was Gentile territory. And the big idea these Judean teachers, these Jewish teachers were bringing and and taking to churches all over the place, we would presume, not just Antioch, was this, that before you become a Christian, you got to become a Jew. That in order to get to Jesus, you have to go through Moses, or the law of Moses, and keep that law and everything about it, again, that, that was their message. And, th- and this was how clear they were. It says, look again at verse one, unless you do this, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's not possible. So, by definition, right off the bat, what are these Judaizers, as they came to be called, doing? They're adding conditions to the gospel. They're saying it's not just Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe this and you'll be saved. No, there's more to the story. And we are here. Aren't you lucky to have us among you to, uh, to show you what these, these additional things are? And, and any time that happens, truly, any time that happens, conditions are added to the gospel, whether the gospel is front-loaded with hoops to jump through, or the gospel is back-loaded with rules to keep in order to assure and, and clarify and, and show everyone you're saved, you have a gospel-centered crisis on your hands. Someone is messing with the message So what they do? We'll look at verse 2. It says, So when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren, that would be the the church at Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. In other words, they recognized the problem they were facing was so deep and so serious That they couldn't just work this out themselves and hope it goes away. They need to take it straight to the top. Let's go back to headquarters. Let's take it to Jerusalem and settle this thing once and for all. So that's what they did. Verses 3 and 4. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church. And the apostles and the elders And they, Paul and Barnabas and whoever came with them, reported all that God had done with them, both in Antioch, we would assume, and and also along the way. And, and, And surely what their report right off the bat upon arriving in Jerusalem indicated was that what they had been through and what they had experienced preaching the gospel, planting churches, discipling new converts, did not square with what these teachers had come to Antioch saying. That there was a a disconnect. There was a disagreement about the nature of the gospel and how people are, are saved. And, and, and you get the sense, it's not really there, but you sort of get the sense that those first few moments went well, that they were gladly received, that, that people were encouraged by what they heard. But then we get to verse 5, and we find another surprise quickly emerges. It says, but, verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees, that was the, the ruling Jewish religious establishment, Who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, there are two big things, real quickly, I want you to note in verse five that make it distinct from verse one. In verse one, you've got guys coming from the outside, coming to the church at Antioch with this message you've got to go through Moses to get to Jesus, you've got to obey the law and become a Jew in order to truly know and follow Jesus Christ. We get the censor from the outside It doesn't say anything about belief, but verse 5 says these guys were insiders. It said some of the sect of Pharisees who had believed, who did know Christ, brought this message to the church at Jerusalem. And not only that, not only were they coming from within, they elevated the nature of the message. Because what did they say? It is necessary not only to circumcise them, which is to take on the the primary external symbol of of adherence to to the Jewish faith, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. They've got to play by all those rules as well. And while we can only speculate on the motive of the outsiders, I don't know where they were coming from. I don't know what their deal was in verse 1. Kind of hard to tell why they would come to the church with this message. I do think we can get a better handle on the motive and the intent of these guys in verse 5 and why they were saying these things and, and why they were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ because I would humbly submit to you that it is a, a danger, a temptation that lurks in every church still today and in every church that's ever existed, down from from the early church to today. say, what's the danger? It's a danger, a temptation to insist upon outward signs, tangible proofs that you really have trusted Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say that you believe in Christ. You need to be able to show it. You need to be able to, to jump through our hoop, to, to, to sign off on this, to, to, to go through these steps, outward tangible signs of what we would term holiness in our own thinking as proof that you really are saved. Now, we can do that to other people. We can do that to ourselves, insist on outward evidence, on outward sign as proof of salvation or, or in order to be saved, and happens all the time. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt. But but the bottom line is this: anytime you ever hear anyone say that the message of the gospel is believe in Jesus and stop listening. <laughs> believe in Jesus and do this. Believe in Jesus and go there. Believe in Jesus and sign on the dotted line in order to be saved. Stop listening because they're messing with the message. Someone, you can be sure, has not gotten the story straight. You are facing a gospel-centered crisis, and that's when it is in those moments that we then need the second thing that the church needed here, that the church got here in verses 6 through 18, which is, first of all, confronting this gospel-centered crisis. What was required, what was necessary, was, secondly, a pivotal moment of clarity. Somebody needed to, to get the story straight. Somebody needed to to get them to stop messing with the message. I want to show you the way they went about it. I want to do it by reading actually a a fairly long section here. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. I want to go all the way down through verse 18, get it all at once, and then we'll go back through it. So so hang with me, follow along in your Bible for a a minute or two. We continue in Acts 15, starting with verse 6, where it says, So the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, by that he means the early days of the church, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving, up, giving, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, Why do you put God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples, these Gentile, non-Jewish converts to Christ, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's sort of the Hebrew rendering of Peter, Simon Peter's name, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. Now he quotes the Old Testament. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. You know, if you have any experience in life whatsoever with resolving conflict, anybody ever dealt with resolving conflict before? Along the way, whether you realize it or not, you've probably learned a lesson that I have come to know well, and this is true of conflict in the church, conflict in marriage, conflict parents and child, workplace, whatever, is this, that that generally when you are involved in conflict and there's a need to resolve it, here's what I've learned. There's his story, there's her story, and somewhere in between is the truth. <laughs> there's your version of, of the facts, there's my version of the facts, and somewhere in between is what was really said, what really happened. We bring our bias, we bring our our, our sort of prejudice, or we bring our angle, or we paint the story and shade it a certain way. And, and the truth of the matter is you, you never quite get to the heart of it because There are different sides to the story, somewhere in between. And and the idea is to try to get there and work it through. That's not what's happening here. It isn't. When Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, which incidentally, just as an aside, to understand what a really big deal this is here in Acts 15, you might want to make note of the fact that this is the only time in the entire New Testament where all four of these apostles occupy the same stage. It's such a big deal, they all had to be, you never see Peter, Paul, James, and Barnabas together in one place again. That's how big a deal this is. And what they did here, it, it, it's not that the four of them and whoever else was alongside them went into a private room somewhere to sort of hammer out, what are we going to message to, it's not politics. It's not that they had conflicting messages and ministries and, guys, we just—we got to find some common ground somewhere to make the people happy and, 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 and get them off our back and make It's not that they had to go figure out something new. Instead, what happened here in verses 6 through 18 was that that, that what each of them shared here, first Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, then finally James, they simply spoke and shared stories and gave accounts that affirmed the original gospel message, that affirmed the clarity of it, and that affirmed the sufficiency of it. And that message is what? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe this and you will be saved. All they're doing is saying what we have been through these past many years affirms the sufficiency of that message and furthermore, that it is sufficient for everyone. There's not one gospel for some people and another gospel for others. It was a pivotal moment of clarity and I want to show you what the three of them, just quickly, I want to show you what the three of them did that... That brought this uh, to the forefront that made it clear they were simply affirming the original gospel message first of all in verses seven through eleven you've got Peter's history Peter speaks first no surprise he stands up and and, and he tells a story in order to to, to sort of work this through and, and again to, to make sure they're getting the story straight because if you look at verse seven again it says that after there had been much debate Peter stood up and he said to them and and, and we would assume we don 't know this for sure but Generally speaking, much if not most of the Jerusalem church membership was there. And he said, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now what Peter's talking about there is something that happened a decade earlier. We studied it in Acts chapter 10. You may remember the story. Peter was led by the Holy Spirit to the house of a Gentile soldier named Cornelius. And it says he went to Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel. And it said, Cornelius and the whole household got saved. Uh, Wife, kids, extended family, servants, all of them, Gentiles, trusted Jesus Christ. And it was through that experience just to refer to chapter 10 for a moment. Peter concluded back then, again, a decade earlier. This is Acts 10, 34 and 35. It says, Peter opened his mouth and he said, I most certainly understand now God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right, that's trust Jesus Christ, is welcome to him. In every nation, every man, every person who will trust Jesus Christ can and will be saved. And so his point, Peter's point here in Acts 15 at, this, at the Jerusalem council, as it's often called, is he's saying, guys, listen, this is a question that got settled a long time ago. Why are we going over this territory again? We figured this out at the beginning, that the gospel is a message that's free to everyone. Rule keeping is not required in order to be saved. There are no hoops to jump through to to get into heaven. You believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and and rose from the dead. And oh, by the way, and I love that he does this in verse 10. He says, oh, by the way, you you may have forgotten that we have a couple of thousand years of, of our own Jewish history to prove we couldn't keep the law? Now, why are we taking something as God's chosen people to whom this law was given that we couldn't keep and say, why don't you try for a while? No, no, no. No, not at all. And that's what brings him to his conclusion in verse 11. He says, guys, remember, we believe that we're saved to the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. And note the construction of that sentence it was intentional and Peter's audience would have caught it. He didn't say, they're saved the same way we are. He said, no, no, we're saved the same way they are. Peter's making a point here. We are one in the body of Christ. We are saved the same way. That's how we become followers of Christ. That's Peter's history, which corresponded perfectly with what we see next in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas's testimony. In verse 12, Paul and Barnabas give their testimony of events, of of what they had been through, and it's only a single verse. All it says is that as the people kept silent, apparently Peter had uh, brought the the place to a hush, says they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now that's one verse, but that encompasses an entire missionary journey we just got done looking at. That's referencing everything they'd been through in chapters 13 and 14 as they went about... Through the Gentile world, leading people to Christ and establishing churches. Because what Paul and Barnabas would have been able to stand up and say, and what I believe, in fact, they did say, is is that everywhere we've been, Jews and Gentiles have believed, and they believe the same way. They believe the same gospel. They've trusted the same Jesus. And and if anything, what Paul and Barnabas could have said is, is, it's interesting, the Gentiles seem to be more receptive to it than the Jews do. And the churches they established together are thriving. Together. Which again, what does that do? It simply affirms what Peter said. And Peter was simply affirming the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe it and you will be saved. So Peter gives a history lesson. Paul and Barnabas give some testimony. And, and if at that point in the council any doubt remained in anyone's mind, it would have been abolished in verses 13 through 18 by the Apostle James's authority. James's authority, which did not flow from his own power of personal persuasion. It flowed, the authority did, from the words of Scripture. He took them, as we should always do, straight to God's word. Specifically, he quotes primarily from, and this is not a place most of us probably go in our devotions often, Amos chapter 9, where along with some some references, it would seem it's it's a little vague, a little bit perhaps from Isaiah, a little bit perhaps from Jeremiah as well. But this is what he said. He takes him to the scriptures. And he says in verse 14, guys, Simeon, Peter, he's related how God first concerns himself with taking from among the Gentiles a people, excuse me, for his name. And he said, and with this, the words of of the prophets, he could have said, our prophets agree. And here's what the prophets said. God speaking through them. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which had fallen. David's kingdom had certainly fallen essentially disappeared. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. In other words, listen, gang, we may not have seen it coming. It may not have been the way we would have designed it and mapped it out. But here's what James said. He said, what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have been doing, affirms what God said 800 years ago. that there's one gospel message, and it's for the whole world. We Jews, and I'm sure this is what James was communicating. Listen, we, we may be, and we are his chosen people. He, he chose Abraham, and, and he built a great nation. He has been keeping his promises all along through us, but, but what we seem to be losing sight of here is that through us, he wants to reach the whole world. Through us, he wants this gospel to go to every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. We were never meant to keep this to ourselves. Verse 17, why did he choose us or why is he rebuilding? Why will he rebuild? Because so that, verse 17, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And that's especially authoritative testimony compelling testimony when you understand, and I I didn't know it, I had to get this straight myself this week, who this particular James is. There's a couple of different Jameses in the New Testament. This one was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. His mother was Mary, his father was Joseph. He grew up sleeping in the same room. He grew up, he knew Jesus personally. On a personal, as now, now, the Bible says it took him a long time to believe, but he knew Jesus from day one. And he grew up with Jesus, so, so he knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was obedient to the Old Testament law. Of course, we know kept it perfectly. Not only that, but, but as a grown man, he, he came to be nicknamed, there's evidence he came to be nicknamed James the Just, because he was so strictly adherent and devoted to the Old Testament, to God's law to keeping the law and following the law. And and he had a sterling reputation for purity and personal holiness. This was a godly man. Thoroughly Jewish, but thoroughly saved. And that did not, here's the the, the point, at least I believe is part of the point, that didn't therefore make him James the the narrow-minded legalist. (laughs) Didn't cause him to, to narrow the offer of salvation to just certain people and who follows certain rules and do things certain ways. Instead, what it indicates here is that made him, James, the authoritative champion of God's free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when he spoke, listen, everybody paid attention. He put an end to the discussion because his life and his testimony and his authority all affirmed the gospel of Jesus Christ And by going to the scriptures, the bottom line is nothing more needed to be said. Everything we're doing affirms what God's always said, that the gospel is for all who will believe. And so hopefully at this point you agree with me this really is a pivotal moment of clarity, a needed moment of of clarity in, in the early church, in the whole church, and and there really is only one gospel message. And, and the takeaway, or, 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 or the application, if you want to use that word for us today, is, is, is the same goes. This is a message, the gospel message, that works the same way for everyone. Everywhere, all the time, to anyone who will believe. The gospel is the same in Marion as it is in Mozambique. It is the same in the 21st century as it was in the first. It's the same always. Everywhere, all the time, for those who will hear and believe. The gospel message is the same whether you are young or old, whether you are rich or poor, black or white, educated or illiterate. It's the same. We come to Christ the same way. And anything different, write it down. Anything different, by definition, is a fraud. Anything that messes with the message is a fraud. That's why, just to pick one out of the air. The prosperity gospel, it doesn't work because it doesn't work everywhere. You can't go anywhere, anytime, at any point in history, anywhere in the world and say, God loves you, wants you to be saved, and he's going to fill your life with material blessings. That is a fraud. Because it's not true. It doesn't work everywhere. But the message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead, believe this and you'll be saved, that works everywhere, all the time. And it doesn't need scaffolding to hold it up it's clear. It's a moment of clarity. We need this clarity as we share this message with others. And with that said, all that remained was to get the word out. They brought the crisis to Jerusalem. It's time to get it back out to the churches. And that's why the third and the final thing I want you to see here with me quickly is how establishing this, affirming this, clarifying the the one true message of the gospel, how going forward, then they charted They charted a Christ-like way forward. And how do we implement this, and, and how do we get this clearly before God's people? They charted a Christ-like way forward, and we're just going to dip into this this morning. There's a lot more that needs to be said next week as, that unpacks it further, so we're going to kind of go through this, these last three verses quickly because we'll have more time to dig into it next week. But whatever the case, here's what verses 19 through 21 say. James is still speaking. He said, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) You're paying attention to that. It sort of looks like what James did is just contradict everything James just said. The gospel is free everywhere all the time. But let's write to the Gentiles and let's give them some rules to live by. Wait a second. Did James just mess with the message? Did James just corrupt the gospel? Well, it it sort of looks that way. But now he's adding conditions. But that's not what he's doing. Instead, what James does here, and and I want to be as clear, this is is a challenging couple of verses, I want to be as clear as possible, and again, understanding we will explore it in more detail next week, is James is now, at this point, now, now that they've established the way of salvation, the gospel, now he's not talking about salvation. He's saying, now, how can a radically diverse, different group of people who all believe in the same Jesus and came to believe in him the same way, get along in the body of Christ? Now he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about unity and fellowship. Because we have different heritages and backgrounds and and differences, all of them were saved the same way. How can they live in authentic fellowship that respects their heritage and their unique ways of life? And I think really what we're given sort of in microcosm here is is an important lesson in in mutual submission and surrender in the body of Christ. What it means for me to lay my life down and my rights down for you and for you to lay perhaps some of your rights down for me in the body of Christ. A picture of Christ-like submission and surrender, and I think that's a particularly important lesson for those of us who live in a culture, even a Christian culture, that insists no one can tell us how to live our lives. That even the church doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. Even Christians can't tell me what I should or shouldn't say or how I should. I mean, we live in, that is the definition of the culture we live in. You cannot tell me how to live my life. That's not exactly, if this is news to you, the gospel way. That's not conducive to to Christ-like fellowship. And so, James, and it would seem with the full authority of the rest of the council, gave two basic instructions Two words of advice to how, now that you are saved and, and, and moving forward in Christ together, how you can do this in harmony. First of all, in verse 19, to the, and we'll do this quickly and then we're done. To the Jews in verse 19, he said this. Guys, the point here today has been don't mess with the message. Pretty clearly established already. Do not hinder those who do not share our lineage, our heritage, our rich religious history. Don't burden them with traditions, no matter how deeply you cherish them, that have nothing to do with salvation. Just don't do it. That's verse 19, his message to the Jews. Now, the Gentiles, in verse 20, he gets a little more specific, and this is where it seems to get a bit tricky. But what he's saying in verse 20, he says, write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, that is, sexual immorality in every form, and what is strangled in from blood. What we understand, James, to be saying there to Gentiles is respect the fact that your fellow Jewish believers have a rich religious heritage which you have no business treating as irrelevant as foolish as ridiculous because you don't get it and he said one of the ways you can do that you can honor them and 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 you can encourage fellowship and unity despite your differences is first of all and again this is really the part we'll dig into next week you guys just refrain from anything that smacks of idolatry particularly he talks about meat sacrificed to idols means nothing to most of us i'm sure it meant a lot to them he said, listen, this is an issue for your Jewish brothers and sisters, those of the Jewish heritage and lineage. And, and so just out of love and kindness toward them, just leave that stuff alone. Your life's not going to be any worse off for it. Don't needlessly frustrate and irritate them. But then he takes it, then he goes to, to one that is a big deal, and it's a big deal from the start of the Bible to the finish, when he talks about sexual sexual immorality and moral purity. Because that is a clear biblical command from start to finish. And say, well, why did he cite that? Why did he pick on that? Because the Gentile culture of that day was exactly like ours. It was a culture that said none of that is a big deal whatsoever. Live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do. As long as you love Jesus, you'll be okay. Not true. Not true. And he said, so remember, this is a big issue. And and it's one that that needed to be singled out because it is a big deal. And and the reason I call that a Christ-like way forward is because that not only gets the gospel straight, giving that sort of instruction to the Jews and the Gentiles who had come to know Christ in the same way, by the same grace, it reflects the example of Christ in real life. Because a little while later in Philippians 2, and you don't need to turn there, but you may want to mark it down. Many of you already know what it says. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, or 6 and 7, Paul said, hey, hey follow the example of Jesus Christ, who existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant, a slave. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He gave up all his rights. Why? So I could get saved and so you could too. If he can lay down everything, I can lay down something for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ, out of grace, with a desire for unity and fellowship. As Jesus freely laid his life down for us, James is saying, "Let's, when necessary, when it will build unity in the body of Christ, let's freely lay down some of these rights that we insist that no one can touch. For sake of unity in the body of Christ, let's live it out in real life. That is a Christ-like way forward. And over a hundred years ago, going back from our day, there was a tribe that uh, existed they still do in in the northeastern part of the country of india they were called the hamar tribe and at the time that time in history around the turn of the 20th century they were known as one of the most savage people groups on the face of the earth particularly noted for their love of beheading in one year alone they beheaded 500 british soldiers who dared infringe on their territory this is a savage wicked evil group of people as all people are apart from jesus christ But one day in in 1910, a a Welsh missionary named Watkin Roberts visited them, and he had been burdened by God. He said, these people need the gospel. And so he went, somehow he got to the chief of the Hamar tribe in northeast India, and he gave him a copy of the gospel of John in a language this priest could understand, or the the chief could understand. And the, the chief looked at it, and he read through it, and he said, I want you to come back and teach this to our people. And so Watkin Roberts, this Welsh missionary, ordinary guy, came back and for the next several years taught the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Hamar people of northeastern India. And within two generations, essentially the whole tribe had been saved. They had turned to faith in Jesus Christ, immediately after which Watkin Roberts was expelled from the country. Missionaries were kicked out. Now you've got this people group who've all turned to Christ and, and they no longer have this shepherd who's been leading them. But what did they have? They had the gospel of Jesus Christ. Had the word of God, and of course, as believers, they had the Holy Spirit, and God kept working, working to the point that in 1971, two of the chief's sons, who had themselves trusted Jesus Christ, became burdened, that in the same way the gospel was once freely given to them, they needed to freely give it to others, and so this was their resolve. They said, we want to, our, our dream, our vision is to put a New Testament in the hands of every family on the face of the earth. And so they started a group called Bibles for the World, still in existence today. And since 1971 up through today, they've freely distributed more than 19 million copies of the Bible around the world. Because they believe that what was freely given to them needs to be freely given to others—the free gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's a cool story, but what's it got to do with Acts 15? Just that it's one among countless examples, we could come up with many more real-life illustrations of how the gospel cuts across every boundary. Social, political, national, relational, racial, cuts across it all with what? With the life-changing message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's a free offer. Believe it, and you'll be saved. That message works, if I can use that word, Everywhere. It's an illustration of, of how God continues to use it to reach the world for Christ. It's, and it's also an illustration of how those who have, have gotten the story straight are those, whether it's Watkin Roberts or the Hamar tribe or the early church or it's us, those who have the story straight are, un, are those who understand that as today's big idea says, the gospel is a gift that is absolutely free. The gospel is a gift that's absolutely free. If it isn't free, it's not the gospel. It's for anyone who will believe. And Father, when those of us who know you search our hearts and our own history, we know that's true. We know that there's one thing that that drew us to faith in Jesus Christ, and it was the, the conviction, the realization that I can't save myself. There is nothing I can do Lord, as someone once said long ago, nothing good in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. Lord, you freely gave your son for us. He freely laid his life down for our salvation. The scripture we read earlier reminds us that the gospel is a free gift by grace through faith. And Father, those of us who know it and those of us who received it, we simply today say thank you again and again. And Father, for those here among us who don't know that yet, who've not heard, who've not believed, who've not received, Father, show them, help them to understand here today that it's time to stop trying and working and proving and running and surrender to Christ who sets us free. Father, thank you for those who've handed the word of God to us. Thank you for those who've, who've spoken the truth of the gospel to us Father, may we as your people here and now today in a rapidly darkening world continue to uphold the free offer of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.